Well, hey, everybody, it's Kevin Stevenson. Thanks for joining me uh, this week on I Don't Care with, yeah, me, Kevin Stevenson. Uh, really excited about my guest today. It's a long time, really good friend of mine, Scott Manis. Scott, welcome to I Don't Care. Hey, good morning or good evening, what, I guess. Whatever yeah. time, we know, who knows. But uh, Scott's a regional vice president for Health Tech, and I'll let him explain, uh, explain a little bit about what Health Tech does. But Scott's been in healthcare over 30 years. Uh, I met him when he was, he was a CEO in Dallas. Uh, he's, he's done that for a number of hospitals, uh, sizes from uh, 18 beds to 460 beds. He's developed a lot of strategic partnerships uh, all across the healthcare landscape. And so, again, Scott, so happy that you were able to join me today. And the reason Scott joined me is I saw an article and shared it on LinkedIn about rural healthcare. And I said, you know, I, I can go both ways on this because I, I know the value of rural healthcare. I've been in rural healthcare. I love it. But I've also seen some smaller hospitals that really, you know, they weren't, they didn't have the resources to provide a level of care. And so Scott called me out on it on LinkedIn. And uh, so I asked him, hey, let's come on the show and let's talk a little bit about it. So Scott, Again, tell my listeners a little a little bit about you, about Health Tech, and then we'll just hop into uh, into our discussion for today. Well, sure. Well, Kevin, I, like you said, we've probably known each other close to fifteen yeah. years. Um, I've been in healthcare literally all my life. Started at the bedside as a phlebotomist in high school, and have uh, held you know a lot of positions uh, throughout uh, various healthcare organizations. Been in uh, government-owned hospitals, been in nonprofits, been in for-profits, uh, worked my way uh, in and out of a variety of CEO offices. And now with Health Tech, I'm a regional vice president. Um, Health Tech is a company that uh, basically does three things at our core. We manage uh, small, uh, primarily rural hospitals. We provide consulting services to hospitals again, primarily um, rural hospitals, uh, community hospitals. And then uh, we also do interim and permanent placement for director and executive level um, team members uh, at hospitals as well. Um, my role specifically is uh, in business development and in managing some of the hospitals that we have management arrangements. Okay, where, where are the hospitals that you manage? So they're scattered across the country. Um, we, you know, usually where they are is uh, you fly to a remote airport and drive a couple of hours from sure. there. Uh, so I have some hospitals in Arizona, New Mexico, Montana, Southern Illinois. Uh, those are ones that are kind of, you know, in my basket right okay. now. Okay. Yeah. So, so you do get to put uh, a few miles in the air uh, visiting oh, yeah. those. So. Well, very good. Well, let's talk about rural healthcare, rural hospitals, and and what are some of the main issues that we're facing right now? Uh, you know, and, and if you would, one one thing I'd like for us to to kind of hit on is the new designation of rural emergency hospital. We've got one really close to me here in Waco, uh, and uh, it's relatively new, just started here in January. So I think everybody's still trying to feel that out. But I would like to to talk a little bit about that too. Sure. Yeah. So we'll be happy to talk about the rural emergency hospitals. So another whole uh, basket of designation. Uh, but 
just uh, kind of the key issues facing uh, hospitals across the country, rural hospitals in particular, are, are two things, you know, really at the forefront. One is staffing and workforce uh, and just getting qualified people uh, to, you know, getting and keeping good people, right? We've seen through COVID with all the, um, you know, contract agency nursing and all that kind of thing. Uh, that's on the downhill slide, thank goodness. Uh, but just good people overall that are, um, you know, that want to be in healthcare. Folks have so many options these days. Um, pay is still an issue as well. Uh, but um, workforce, according to a recent ACHE survey of CEOs, workforce uh, challenges were the number one challenge. Um, behind that then are financial challenges, financial viability, operational excellence, uh, those kinds of things. But, you know, if you don't have the people, obviously you can't operate the organization. Yeah. Um, Let's touch on that a little bit because I know, you know, here and, and I'm in, I'm in Waco, uh, Texas. Uh, we're, uh, for those of you not from Texas, we're, we're a town of about 175,000, uh, about 275, 280 in the county. So, yeah, and we're centrally located between Dallas and, and uh, Austin. Uh, so right on the I-35 corridor, which is a huge, a huge, uh, hugely trafficked highway. Um, and we have a hard time recruiting. Uh, so I can't imagine, you know, what do rural hospitals do? How are you, how are you guys recruiting, you know, the requisite nurses and, and techs and other clinicians to your hospitals? So it, a lot of creative ways, right? Um, you've got to develop your own yeah. as much as you can. Um, one of the hospitals that I have is in a community of 4,000 people that is the county seat, yeah. right? So it's the biggest town in the county in Montana mm -hmm. of 4,000 people. Um, and, and, you know, towns go down from there to about 1,000 uh, is probably the next uh, most populous town. Um, so for us, it's working with the local university, working with community colleges, uh, growing uh, nursing programs, growing MAs, uh, even locally through some workforce development in the local community there with the local uh, university. Um, one of the hospitals that I have is in rural southwestern New Mexico, okay. town of 10,000, county of 40,000, but the next nearest hospital is an hour and 45 minutes huh. away, right? And so for us, um, you can't just say, oh, well, we'll go recruit down the street. Um, no, again, you know, working very collaboratively with the local university, uh, training our own, bringing people up through the organization and then recruiting from outside sometimes is a necessity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and provide excellent care because the reputation proceeds and people will know whether they want to go sure. work there or not. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we can, we can talk about culture as well, uh, here in a few minutes, but, but you were talking about the financial viability of, of rural healthcare and really hospitals as a whole right now. You know, we're all facing, uh, you know, economic pressures, whether it be the, the incredible rise over the last couple of years of, of salary wages and benefits or the, uh, you know, the inflationary pressures on supplies. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about that because that hits differently in rural healthcare. Well, it, it does to an extent, but, you know, the same pressures that you see that we're seeing in large urban 
system uh, hospitals or, or hospital systems as, an, as a whole. You know, Providence uh, up in Washington mm-hmm. State, they're reporting seems like, uh, you know, quarterly record losses uh, throughout their yeah. entire system. Um, that has, you know, when, when, when you look at that and compare that to what's going on in the rural market, um, in some hospitals, they're experiencing the same exact thing. Maybe a fewer number of zeros on the on the trailing end of the number, mm-hmm. right? But um, regardless of the organization you're in, operational excellence and financial viability have to be paramount. Yeah. Uh, and you can't get too fat and happy. You can't have too many um, things that might seem like an initiative but really aren't, um, especially if they are... Um, if their financial uh, drains on the organization. So most organizations these days are continually evaluating services and service lines to see if that's something that they want to stay in. And the biggest indicator of that is the loss of OB services across the country. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with the maternity deserts, uh, you know, that are just growing nationally. Yeah, talk a little bit about that because I was looking at, uh, and Scott just just spoke at the Wyoming Hospital Association pretty pretty recently, and was kind enough to send me his presentation, and that really struck me was was what you talked about with the with the OB desert. Let's talk a little bit further about that. That's frightening. Share with my audience a little bit about just the scope of that. Well, when you. Um, it, there were there was an article recently in uh, in Becker's Hospital Review, uh, but there there are you know there are things out there all the time. But uh, one that really struck me was uh, one from about a month ago in Becker's where it talked about uh, hospitals across the country closing service lines, and it said 32 hospitals are closing departments or ending services. Uh, what it didn't say in there. Um, and I had to go through and add it up, was 15 of those 32 were closing OB departments. Um, and that has just been a continual trend across the mm-hmm. country. Um, two-thirds, of the major- or two-thirds of the maternity deserts, so counties that don't have uh, OB services are in rural mm-hmm. areas in the country. Uh, and so um, it, it's just, it's a growing concern. There aren't enough uh, obstetricians. There, you know, there aren't very many uh, places that are willing to have babies anymore, frankly. Yeah. Well, I... two, of the, two of the, well, three of the five hospitals uh, that I actively am responsible for uh, only do, or do OB. Two of them okay. don't. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm... we're in rural communities that would, you know, love to have that. That's just the service they got. Yeah. Out of. Well, I'm looking at the map that you had in your presentation and there's 3,143 total counties in the, uh, in the U S of yep. that it, maternity care deserts are in 1119. So as you said, a third of the counties and it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all, yeah. There's a lot of that in the rural areas, but you know, people think, well, you know, if I live in, in New England or, or, you know, somewhere maybe in California, wherever, I'm probably okay. And, and I'm really surprised that that's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily the case. There are still counties uh, in, in those high population areas that, that yeah. don't have maternity services. 
Well, and again, you know, using an example of the hospital that uh, that I work very closely with in southwestern New Mexico, mm -hmm. the next nearest hospital is an hour and 45 minutes away. The county is massively large land-wise, land mm -hmm. um, and yet um, hour and 45 minutes if, if, you know, you're driving to the next nearest place, but if you're driving from a far corner of the county, add another hour onto yeah. that, I can tell you. I wouldn't want to be in the wife in the car with my wife for two hours and forty five minutes if she's in labor trying to get there. Absolutely, yeah, no, that's true. Okay, let let's talk about the impact of Medicaid expansion on rural healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, there are and, and primarily, I mean, Texas is one of the states that hasn't expanded Medicaid, but you know, you're talking about Wyoming, Kansas, Wisconsin, and basically the entire southeastern part of the United States. How does yep. that affect rural hospitals? Well, you know, in in Texas or uh, in in Wyoming, where I'm I'm more familiar, um, what it ends up doing is those patients are going to come to the hospital, mm -hmm. right? They come when they need um, acute care or when they're having an acute episode, uh, you know, concern, and and so the hospital is going to take care of them. Uh, what ends up happening is, is the hospital doesn't get reimbursed, right? Or has to try to chase them for um, self-pay. Mm -hmm. And the chances of that are generally pretty yeah. slim. And so uh, that, that's been tough. That's been tough. In Wyoming alone, I think they've gone to the state legislature the last nine sessions mm -hmm. in a row uh, trying to get it passed, and it's failed every yeah. single time. Yeah. And, and Texas is no different. I mean, we're very familiar here. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And, and, and silly question, because, you know, not all my uh, audience are healthcare people. Why is it Medicaid expansion? Yeah. You know, talk a little bit about that for, for some folks. And, and why is it, you know, after you explain, why is it just a no brainer? Well, um, you know, it, it comes down to there's some politics yeah. uh, obviously involved, right? Um, it comes down to how states choose to utilize their their state taxes, whether they're income taxes or sales tax or other things like that. Um, the Medicaid expansion, um, you know, will can give states uh, additional funding uh, through matching dollars from the feds to uh, uh, expand services to potentially Medicaid eligible um, people. And you look at it and you say, yeah, on the surface, mm -hmm. you know, most states have gone down that path and, uh, and it's good for them. Uh, so, so why doesn't Texas or why haven't others? Um, and I think it's probably in some ways also, they're afraid of, you know, how deep that hole is uh, that, that they might have to, uh, to help fund, especially in Texas with all the border issues we have and other things like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, an, another issue that we certainly face here uh, in Waco that, uh, that I know it's, it's rampant throughout the country is just the rise in the behavioral health issues that we have in, in our country. Talk about that in a rural setting where, you know, if you're not able to deliver, you know, OB services, Behavioral health is probably, you know, not going to happen either, right? 
Well, yeah. Um, no, actually, behavioral health probably happens better. Really? Okay. Um, because the behavioral health services, you know, you can do that by uh, by telehealth yeah. uh, for the most part, and and you really can't deliver a baby by sure. telehealth. Uh, that, that makes it a little bit more challenging. You know, it's hard to do a telehealth C-section. Right. Um, but in, in the, the behavioral health folks, whether you're talking about social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, licensed, you know, professional counselors and others, they were the early adopters and the ones that hardwired how to do telehealth long before mm-hmm. COVID. Um, and so, be, and, and it was because there was a paucity of number of providers uh, across the country. And if you're a psychiatrist and you had an opportunity to live, uh, you know, somewhere in a rural community versus in a uh, large urban setting and, you know, all the family things that you might be looking for accoutrements and things like that to go along with that, why not uh, live in, uh, you know, in a place that, you know, may fit your bill a little sure. bit more. Uh, and, and so that episodic nature of telehealth for behavioral care, especially when it could be, you know, very scheduled, very regimented, you know, visit once a week, visit twice a week, visit every other week, you know, from 10 to 11, that kind of thing, um, has worked out really well. The, um, right on the heels of that, uh, also then there were the, telepsych evaluations for the ER and things of that nature. Um, and so, as I said, the behavioral health aspect of care in rural markets has been pretty well done for a while. Can it be better? Of course, right? Um, there's, you know, there's still a dearth of services for pediatric psychiatry and, and other things like that. Um, whereas other services would be uh, much more challenging but the you know when you're looking at uh inpatient behavioral health beds and things like that those have been declining yes. um harder to get into definitely not as well funded um again the the hospital where i'm very familiar in new mexico the next nearest behavioral health hospital is hour and 45 minutes two hours away let's okay. say uh, two hours away, and if patients come into the ER there um, and need to get transferred to an inpatient uh, psychiatric facility, it's a six-hour round mm-hmm. trip for our team to take them there to, um, you know, make sure that they're safe, take them by ambulance because they're ER patients, ER to ER transfer, and uh, and get them admitted and get back. And so that ties up uh ambulance on a regular basis uh, for us in that community that would otherwise not be in service. Well, and and if you even have the the capability of getting an open bed, because as you said, the decline in inpatient beds just over the last three years is approaching 10%. And and so, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's an issue. And and we have our own behavioral health hospital uh, attached to our hospital. But, you know, to try to find a higher level of care, it's almost impossible. And so we have a number of behavioral health patients that are, you know, in our ER for sometimes, you know, multiple days. And so, but, oh, yeah. uh, but okay. So let's talk about this new designation, rural emergency hospital, uh, share with my folks uh, a little bit about that because I, th- I think it's fascinating. It is very fascinating. Um, I haven't had direct involvement with, uh, with any of them yet. I'm kind of watching that. 
Uh, I know there are two or three, uh, three at least that I know of right uh, in Texas mm -hmm. that have uh, converted or um, in that conversion process right now. Probably more of these are the ones that are just at the top of my head. Um, and, and there are a number of others across the country. Uh, so basically um, what CMS um, put together now about three years ago, something like that, three or four years ago were um, requirements, due requirements for um, organizations that wanted to convert to a rural emergency uh, hospital status. And so what that is, is a different designation from being a critical access hospital or being a PPS community hospital. Um, and these hospitals could say, you know what, we're no longer going to admit patients. Mm -hmm. uh, we're no longer going to admit inpatients or swing bed patients um, at all. We're going to focus on outpatient services, emergency services, and other outpatient services. And in exchange for that, okay, what do you, what do you get, right? In exchange for that, they get um, about $3 million a year a, a check stroke to them from CMS, uh, and that's sort of to offset the um, small inpatient mm -hmm. census that they may have been carrying. Uh, and then secondarily, uh, they get a boost on the um, rate that they're paid on their outpatient services. Okay. And that boost is, I think, upwards of about 5%. Okay. Uh, so a hospital, I mean, and there are, there are a number of hospitals, even in Texas, that are 10 to 15 million dollar net revenue per year mm -hmm. hospitals super small right and most hospitals these days especially small rural hospitals are about 90 percent of their revenue is from outpatient maybe 10 percent or 20 15 to 20 yeah. percent from inpatient services to begin with um, a lot of them hang in hang on to inpatient service um, in that designation because you know they don't want to look like a band-aid station in their community uh, or other things of that nature um, but strategically um, maybe it is a good decision for some hospitals especially if they're struggling financially to find staffing to staff an inpatient unit around the clock staffing uh, a number of other things around the clock that you would need to have uh, for inpatient services why not consider the rural emergency hospital designation? Uh, and then the only thing that you're running around the clock really is your yeah. ER um, and, and services associated with that. And you can still make all the money you've been making on outpatient plus a little sure. bit more. Sure. Um, and so some communities have taken that hard decision and, and evaluated it and said, yeah, we're losing money and maybe this is the way to go or maybe it's just a better way to go to provide better care in our community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the other drawbacks that I see is, you know, typically in, well, I mean, it, in a town of our size too, but uh, but especially in the small, smaller uh, towns, you know, the hospital is the is the largest employer typically. Yep. And, and so if you start scaling back services, that means scaling back jobs. And so, you know, there's, there's multiple impacts on that. And so, yeah, I know that's what that's what's really causing some hospitals to forego that, you know, uh, kind of a lifeline, if you will, to try to see if there's some other way to make it happen. So, so, so right. Yeah. One, of the, one of the interesting things, if, if you don't yeah. mind on this, is that um, CMS has said 
that you have to be a hospital in order to convert to rural emergency yeah. hospital status. So you had to have already been a hospital mm -hmm. uh, to do that. Um, and, and I can see where they probably put that in as a guardrail so that, you know, the, the fly-by-night upstarts aren't just starting up rural emergency hospitals now like we did freestanding right. ERs a few years ago all over the place, right? Um, the downside of that is, is like there's one community that we're actively talking with right now um, in the Mountain West area that doesn't have a hospital that would be perfect mm -hmm. probably for a rural emergency hospital designation uh, to get them up and off the ground and to do something more than just be a clinic, okay. frankly. Um, but they can't do that because they're not a hospital to begin with and they have no reason to be a hospital. Yeah. Um, and so that little nuance is preventing them from potentially getting to where they could be and serving their community better. Uh, but I understand why those guardrails are there right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was one of the first things I thought of too is, yeah, how many how many corporations are gonna are going to be created just to be able to do that? So uh, glad that that's yep. not happening. So so let's you know in the last few minutes that we have, I want to talk about you know the the rural hospitals that are at risk for closure. That's that's incredibly, yeah, it's devastating to a community. It's devastating to the to the availability of healthcare. You know, talk about that because you know I'm looking at I'm looking at the map in your presentation. And, and Texas has 71 hospitals at risk of closure. Uh, yep. And, uh, you know, it, it's uh, what happens to these communities? Well, um, in some cases, the communities, you know, lose that resource. Right. right? And um, they they no longer have a hospital there. They might be able to keep a clinic open or something like that in that uh, community. I know, um, I mean, there are a number of examples yeah. in Texas where hospitals have closed, um, rural hospitals have closed in uh, the recent years. And uh, we see that, you know, from time to time. There were um, actually just yesterday, there was an announcement of one in Illinois that's uh, closing. We were actually asked to look at that one, uh, you know, okay. uh, looked at it from a distance and said, no, thank yeah. you. Like, that place was in really, really, really bad shape. Um, fortunately for that one, there are two other hospitals within 10 okay. minutes either way of that community. Uh, so it's not as though those communities are going to, you know, not have care. They won't be that far away uh, there. In Texas, though, you know, when you're, you know, an hour and a half west of Abilene or something like that, and the hospital there closes down, you might be 30, 40 minutes to the next nearest yeah. hospital. Um, and so it is, uh, it is very relevant, you know, when there've been, um, 136 rural hospital closures in the last 10 years, um, uh, that's concerning. And, um, that means those communities no longer have, you know, the same level of resources that they had. Um, and, and typically that's around financial viability. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the misconception that people have is, oh, these these hospitals that are closing are small. That's not the case. I mean, I've seen, you know, hospitals, 300 beds. Uh, the the hospital in Atlanta that was, what, about 600 beds that, that shut down. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so yep. so hospitals, you know, in today's environment, 
you know, if, if you're not watching your operations and if you're not, you know, watching your finances, you're at risk. Well, and, and that brings me to, you know, why we do what we do mm -hmm. with health tech, right? Um, we contract with the hospitals to, um, to manage them and put in best practices and work with the, uh, the board and the executive teams there to ensure that um, they're not just financially viable, but they're successful and they're growing and continuing to provide services in their community. And that's what we're all about uh, here. I've been in healthcare a really long time. I've been, you know, in healthcare in Dallas and I've been in healthcare in communities of three, 4,000. Um, and frankly, I'll take the ones of three or 4,000 any day of the week. Yeah. Uh, it's just, that, 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 that fits me pretty well. Um, but the challenges, uh, the challenges are real. And when you're in these communities that, uh, don't have the resources, they don't have the expertise, maybe the board members aren't, um, uh, you know, we've got to provide a lot of education to them, um, and, and really, um, work with the teams locally to ensure that, you know, best practices are put in place to ensure that viability. So they don't end up on this list. Yeah. Well, Scott, I think the work that that you and, and Health Tech does, you know, it it's it's incredibly valuable for for rural hospitals yeah. and just the the accessibility to care for millions and millions of Americans. So thanks for doing that. You know, you, uh, you you're keeping you're keeping these uh, these facilities afloat. And well, that's, well, we're keeping the lights yeah. on and uh, at the same time providing outstanding care there. We want to be a resource to those communities and and you know grow our footprint. Uh, there are a lot of hospitals that are out there struggling right now, and um, you know daily we're reaching out to some of them to just say, hey, you know if you're open to a conversation, we think we have some solutions. Yeah. Uh, we'd be open to that anywhere. That's fantastic, Scott Manis, Re regional vice president for Health Tech. Thanks, thanks so much for joining me uh, on I Don't Care today. It's been great to see you, my friend. Yeah, good to see you, Kevin, and uh, continue the good work that you're doing with Ascension in, uh, in Waco. Thanks so much. Great to see you. All right, everybody. All right. Look forward to having we'll you next you. week uh, on I Don't Care. Uh, have a great week. Talk to you soon. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for that. That was fantastic. Yeah, good. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. And, uh, you know, really enjoyed it. If, you know, you hear about uh, speaking opportunities or uh, opportunities where, you know, we could uh, drop in and help out yeah. somebody, um, don't hesitate. You know, we'd be uh, we'd be happy to jump in and uh, uh, figure some things out with with organizations okay. for sure. Really? Hey, who was it that it's uh, converted to rural oh. emergency hospital near you? Yes, is it uh, over there? Um... It's Falls in Marlin. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay, in Marlin. Got and it. I know Lagrange is in the midst, and I can't remember. Yeah, Lagrange. Mark Mark's in the midst of that yeah. right now. They're honestly, I don't know how that place yeah. has um, gone down the tubes as much yeah. as it has. They never did, you know, this is a typical thing, right? I and mean, we don't have to be recording yeah. anymore, but um, it's a typical scenario where years ago, the hospital could have converted to critical access status, but now they can't um, because they're too close to other yeah. hospitals. I talked to Mark about this uh, probably six months ago. Yeah. Um, like, man, you know, frankly, how have you guys driven this thing into the ground? Uh, but right. uh, 
the answer um, was, you know, they're continuing to be PPS. They're licensed, I think, for 44 mm -hmm. beds. Um, and as such, you know, they missed a golden opportunity to be critical access where you get paid a really yeah. good rate um, for a, a really good uh, per diem for Medicare and Medicaid. And um, as a result of that, you know, they're getting probably half of the revenue that they could uh, for inpatient services. And, you know, I don't know much else about the operation yeah. of, of, of the LaGrange Hospital, right? Um, and, you know, some of my friends are the ones that are with the management company that manage that hospital. So I would never say sure. anything bad about, right. uh, about that. But um, I, I don't understand, how, yeah. you know, just between you and me, how that's sure. happened. And I'll tell you. Hey, on another note, I've got a, a really, really good friend of mine who is an MD, MBA, who just got rift, who is, I mean, he has got tremendous strategic uh, uh, abilities, uh, ran, ran Physician Network, started an ACO, um, and uh, don't know if you guys, and, and yeah, he's open to doing some consulting, uh, doesn't want to leave Waco, but open to yeah. doing some consulting. So if you hear of anything, let me know. Okay, will yeah. do. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, a lot of times people these days are landlocked, oh, yeah. and that yeah, that makes it a little bit challenging. But um, yeah, we'll keep them in mind and see, you know, if I hear anything. Yeah, great, Scott. Take care. Great seeing you again, friend. Oh yeah, you bet. Anytime. Okay, Kevin. take care.